Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business program from the newsroom at Business in Vancouver. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at BIV. As governments look to rebuild economies, questions abound about what business looks like on the other side of this pandemic, including what happens to retail in a post-pandemic tech-driven world. Our show focuses all on retail today with my guest, Doug Stevens. He's the founder of the global advisory firm Retail Profit, based just outside of Toronto, and his work has shaped the strategies of retailers, including Walmart, Ikea, BMW, and Google, to name just a few. He's the author of the new book, Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World, and he joins our show today. Doug, great to have you on the program. Great to be here, Haley. Thanks for having me. I've heard you say that the pandemic hasn't merely accelerated trends in retail, it's actually altered the retail landscape. Can you tell me more about that distinction and why it's important? Yeah, I think it's important because there is this sort of trope uh, bouncing around out there that what we have really seen through the pandemic is kind of 10 years of change in 14 months, uh, but all sort of things that would have unfolded eventually anyway. And I don't really see it that way because, you know, on the one hand, we sort of look at a company like Amazon, for example, and we say, you know, wow, this was a crisis tailor made for Amazon. And in the first part of the crisis, their sales were up like 26% and they have really been the beneficiary here. But in a weird sort of way, there's a counter narrative. And that is that Amazon has for the first time, potentially in the last 25 years, had to literally step back and watch the entire retail industry catch up to them. And so while one could say, yeah, sure, they they saw a huge bounce in sales and their profitability has been good, they also recognize now as an organization that they have to move to the next level of their evolution. And so we're starting already to see the very nascent beginnings of an Amazon that is now looking into categories like healthcare, banking, insurance, education, really, really lucrative verticals that are vulnerable to to disruption. And so as Amazon now moves into that second level of its evolution, it is going to raise the competitive stakes for everyone in the market. Because if I'm Jeff Bezos, uh, I want to put my customers under glass, basically in in a walled ecosystem that they never have to leave. And so we're starting to see a chain reaction already. Hudson's Bay, for example, announced a couple of weeks ago that it now is launching a huge third-party marketplace just in an effort now to try and keep up with uh, a company like Amazon. And so uh, that that's just one example of how I see this crisis not simply as, as an extension of things that would have happened anyway, but it has literally changed the chemical atmosphere of the retail industry and we're seeing uh, completely different evolutionary paths now taking place. Pre-pandemic, there were businesses, mostly small businesses that didn't even have a website. They maybe didn't have social media. There's a good argument to be made that that shouldn't have been the case, but they were able to survive without that. Are the days gone where you can survive without any kind of online presence? Yeah, I think so. I, I think, in fact, I would say that they really have been gone for, you know, the better part of a decade. Uh, And, you know, sure, there have been a lot of businesses out there that have been in denial that have pointed to some aspect of their business, whether it was their product, 
or their expertise or their service level that they thought would would see them through. Uh, sometimes it was just the nature of their product. I mean, I, if we go back 10 years, Haley, I'm sure there were plenty of bedding retailers out there that would have said, you'll never sell a bed online because people want to come in and you know test the feel and the comfort of it. Well, we've proven that wrong. Um, so regardless of what it is now, consumers are developing a comfort in buying things online, sometimes incredibly expensive things, automobiles, uh, luxury wristwatches, you know, things that usually would have required a tremendous amount of consideration, but the comfort level in buying online is there. So yeah, I, I think that we have now crossed over literally into the digital world and out of the industrialized world of retail. And that is going to mean that some of these things are just table stakes now. You mentioned that we're starting to see other retailers try and catch up, so to speak, and make investments in different kinds of marketplaces or services. Uh, what else do you expect to see in the next five to 10 years? For example, is consolidation something we're going to see? Are we going to see certain kinds of businesses uh, maybe just find out that they, they can't make it on their own and they need to diversify? What are some of the dominant trends you expect to see over the next 10 years? Yeah, so I, I think certainly as as uh, as we see players weaken in the marketplace, that will create opportunities for consolidation in some verticals. I, we're already starting to see some really interesting consolidation in the shopping center vertical, where now you have players in the U.S. like Simon Properties that are literally buying retail companies that are on the brink and bringing those in as as assets. Um, some would say that that's forestalling the inevitable, perhaps, that you know this is a rent continuation strategy more than it is sort of a strategy aimed at making these retailers vital once again. But nonetheless, there will be consolidation. I think, I think that the overarching recognition, though, for companies will be that so many of the things that you used to look at it as a, as a competitive advantage uh, are, are sort of withering away. So it, there was a time when product was a competitive advantage. Well, now Amazon sells 500 million different products, you know, and the, and the list of products they sell is growing every day. Convenience used to be something retailers would point to and say, yeah, but I'm local to the consumer. You know, they can come and get it right away from me. Amazon is, is shipping next day on, on about 50% of the things that they sell. And they are now building local warehouses where they may be able to ship in a matter of minutes. Uh, or, or worst case, hours uh, on, on most of the things that they sell. And so with each of these different competitive advantages that sort of erodes away, I think we're coming down to one thing, and that is customer experience is the only remaining vestige of competitive advantage for retailers. And that is really this unique alchemy of your culture, um, and, and the content that you deliver to consumers, whether it's in-store or online, every retail company now is an experience company, and every experience is really just an amalgam of really well-designed and constructed content. So I think retailers are going to awaken to the idea that, you know, the retail world that we used to know and that whole occupation is a thing of the past. And we are now in the business of producing amazing content for our customers. And that's a different discipline entirely. Is this something you think Amazon can also dominate having a really great experience? Or is there maybe some room for some serious competition where other kinds of brands offer an ultimately better experience? 
Well, that's the key question, you know, and, and I think, um, you know, DNA is a hard thing to get around, whether you're an individual or whether you're a corporation. And Amazon from, from its genesis was really never about creating um, a highly engaged customer experience. It was really just about availing the largest possible selection of products to consumers with the ultimate level of convenience in getting those products to their door. And when you operate for a quarter of a century based on that ethos, to suddenly spin on a dime and say, now we're in the experience business and we're going to create all kinds of you know, rich story content around the products that we sell, I'm not sure that Amazon can do that. Uh, I'm not suggesting that they may not get there eventually, but I think that for them to do it quickly would be extremely difficult. And that leaves a window of opportunity for every other merchant out there, regardless of their size, to create great content. I'll give you one quick example. Um, in the book, I talk about a business in San Diego, California called Candy Me Up. And they were a wholesale candy distributor that in the early part of the pandemic basically was watching their business just completely dry up. Their sales were down about 30%. And one of the owners, the, the founder's daughter, thought, you know what, I'm going to give this TikTok thing a try. So she and her brother jumped on TikTok and really just started creating amazing, fun content using the store as kind of a studio or a stage. Well, really quickly, they've amassed an audience of almost 900,000 followers on TikTok. Wow. They've created a completely new channel for their business and sales are so brisk, they can barely keep up with them. So just one small example of a business that didn't have to go out and spend $10 million on an ad campaign, but they had to do something that was outside their comfort zone. And in doing so, they created a completely different content experience for their customers, and they have moved a little bit out of Amazon's shadow. I like that example also because they make use of physical retail space that maybe can't be used during a pandemic and found another way to get value out of it. That, that leads me to my question about the future of the physical retail space and how retail leaders should be thinking about turning that into a better opportunity for customer engagement. Well, that's a, it's a great question um, because, you know, we've, we've sort of focused in the retail world on this word omni-channel, you know, the idea that, uh, consumers don't shop in channels and it's really all one big channel experience and that everything should be uniform and seamless across. And I, I've never really subscribed to that idea. I think what we're seeing is more profound. I believe that what we're really seeing, and I think the pandemic has certainly accelerated this, is the idea that media now in virtually every form, whether it's my smartphone or my smart TV or TikTok or Instagram, Every form of media now is a direct path to purchase. It's not just a call out to push me into a channel where I can go shopping. It is literally a buying opportunity in the moment. The flip side of that is that physical stores have become a really powerful form of media if they are used properly. So bringing consumers into the store, exposing them to the ecosystem of value, exposing them to your unique culture and your service levels. That's a really powerful media impression that's being created. 
And now with live streaming technology and, and a lot of the social networks that uh, companies are able to jump onto, those stores can become studios for that content and really expand outside of the four walls uh, for revenue opportunities. So it's a complete sort of diametric reversal of roles between media and physical space. That's very interesting. I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think the future of the main street is it that small mom and pop shops or in larger urban centers, maybe bigger recognizable brands, uh, there's less foot traffic, people aren't shopping that way. How do you think a main street maybe needs to reinvent itself? Well, locality in and of itself, again, is, is not necessarily the advantage that it once was. You know, saying, saying that because we are local, because we are not only merchants, but we are part of the community, people should come out and support us. Yeah, but at the end of the day, we all as consumers have to make choices with what we do with our time and our money. And let's face it, if the, if the offering uh, of not only the, the products and the services, but the experience itself is not superlative, I'm not going to spend time going to my main street in, in my local community. So I think it's incumbent on everyone to really use this opportunity um, not as a crisis, but as a catalyst to, to rethink their value. And what I would say to every Main Street merchant is this. If your brand is the answer, what's the question? What's the, what's the burning question that the consumer out there has that you are the, you know, you know uh, just, just unqualified answer to? What is that question? And if you can figure that out, then that really gives your brand purpose that you can create all kinds of great content around and really become a destination. But if you just sort of, you know, can't quite figure out what that hook is, uh, then really you, you are just sort of superfluous uh, to, to the consumer's uh, needs. And um, you've got to figure that out. That becomes your North Star. I know we've probably touched on a number of these already, but your book outlines a number of archetypes for retail leaders. Uh, what are some, in your view, of the key considerations? I won't make you go through all of them, but the top yeah. one, two, maybe three that retail leaders should be thinking about. Sure. And, and maybe I'll, what I'll do is I'll break it out even, even more simply. Basically, the archetypes, the 10 archetypes fall into four quadrants, which I call the, the four competitive quadrants. They are culture. They are entertainment their expertise and product. So if you're a culture-based brand, let's take a brand like Patagonia, for example, that really has sort of a you know, deep history of, of being uh, uh, at the front line of environmental issues, you're what we call an activist archetype and you, and you really reside within the cultural quadrant. Uh, if you are on the other hand, a brand that provides entertainment for the consumer, the shopping experience in and of itself is entertaining, then that puts you in the entertainment quadrant. And an, arch an archetypal example there is the artist brand, a brand that may not sell things that are wildly different than you can find anywhere else, but they construct such a beautiful theatrical sort of experience around it that the experience becomes the product. The, the third quadrant is the expertise quadrant. So that's really just about being the authoritative voice in your category and becoming that beacon for consumers that need information on the product that they're buying. And then finally, the product, the product quadrant, which is just all about the, 
either the elegance, the beauty, or the design, the superior design of your product. The idea is to dominate in one of those quadrants in your category. That's the starting point. Uh, so the book sort of lays all these out and gives retailers the ability to either choose or find the one that they identify with. And if someone picks up your book, what takeaways do you hope that they, they glean from the book? I think the biggest overarching takeaway is that, you know, really and truly it sounds trite, but in, inside every crisis is an opportunity. And I think that the pandemic has really handed retail, the retail industry an opportunity to rethink everything, not just the competitive ability of a single retailer somewhere in the marketplace, but really the whole industry, you know, um, the degree to which supply chains today are, are just insanely constructed, completely inefficient, uh, the damage that the retail industry does to the environment, you know, this gives us a chance to rethink these things. So I think the overarching message is that we have an opportunity here to come out of this pandemic better as businesses, better and smarter as business people, and my hope is healthier and better as an industry. I do want to ask you quickly about that sustainability piece, because I know Amazon has its own targets, but some say it's simply not doing enough just because of its scale. It has such a big impact. Do you think that consumers are going to be more climate focused, more sustainability minded in their purchasing decisions? And is that a sticky enough value that they'll actually alter their behaviors? That's a great question. I, I think that the, what we have seen is that I think there are kind of two camps in society. There's There are those uh, who have really taken the opportunity through this crisis to reflect, you know, to reflect on their their own behaviors, you know, and to really question their ethos around consumption. And uh, then there are those who I think have engaged in absolutely no reflection. You know, it's just sort of been more, 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 more. Keep me stimulated. You know, I I, I want to buy more things, have more things, and more distractions in my life. Um, so I think that, the, you know, we've seen society kind of divide along those lines. I think that what the pandemic has certainly shown us is the degree to which we really and truly are interconnected as a society. And where if one thing happens in one part of the world, it can very dramatically impact people in another part of the world. And I think that that's sort of a, a almost an allegory, really, for the whole climate crisis. You know, what, what we do here affects people in Asia and vice versa. Uh, we're all affected by the actions of others. And having said that, sustainability is always a modifier. I think that if you ask most consumers, you know, how important is sustainability of the products you buy? They'll say absolutely paramount importance. And then you say, but are you willing to pay 30% more for those products if they're sustainable? Well, that that's a different story. So we have to not only be better as organizations and stop doing so much harm. But we also have to deliver on the other aspects as well. Great value, uh, great customer experience and shopping experience, and, and obviously great products as well. But, um, you know, the, I was speaking with someone when I was writing the book um, named William McDonough. He wrote a book called Cradle to Cradle. Really super smart guy. But he said, you know, we have to, we have to not target doing less bad as an objective, as an industry doing less bad is still being bad. We have to start trying to be good as a retail industry and actually improving the planet that we rely on. Well said. Doug, a pleasure having you on the show. Final question, where can people find a copy of the book? 
Well, apart from Amazon, um, <laughs> you can find the book in uh, virtually all your local sellers. So in Canada, um, certainly Chapters Indigo uh, will stock it. And if it's not there, then you can always resort to Amazon. Doug, great having you on the show. Thanks so much for joining me with your insight and expertise. Thanks so much for having me. That's Doug Stevens. He's the founder of the global advisory firm Retail Profit and the author of the new book, Resurrecting Retail, The Future of Business in a Post-Pandemic World. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks so much for joining our show. We'll be back with a new episode tomorrow. Tomorrow.